Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The government wants to make our media safer. Just what they mean by safe is a very subjective discussion. So through the Department of Internal Affairs, they released a discussion document called Safer Online Services and Media Platforms. I've read the executive summary of this document. On the surface, it looks quite harmless. The objectives of this review of media regulation are to provide better consumer protection and to reduce risk and improve safety without detracting from essential rights like freedom of expression and freedom of the press. It's also designed to bring our legislation up to date. For instance, the Broadcasting Act was passed in 1989 before the age of the internet. And therein lies the crunch. The internet has changed everything. Anybody can start a media outlet online, like this one, and it is not subject to regulation, apart from self-regulation. One man expressing concern about this discussion document, uh, which may well form the basis of new legislation is former District Court Judge David Harvey. He's also lectured on law and information technology at Auckland University for nearly 20 years. He joins me now. David, thank you for for being with us. I've said at first reading, uh, this plan looks logical because we have to bring legislation up to date. And after all, what is so wrong with, uh, with making the community safer? So what's the problem here? Oh, thank, thanks for the opportunity, Peter. And, and um the problem, I think, uh, is in the detail. Um, the uh, the first reading of the executive summary, and indeed the first reading of the discussion paper, uh, and there are ninety pages of it, so it's not a short read. Are, um, uh, sound pretty good, but it's when you look at the detail of it um, that you get into some difficulty, and you can find out that there is an awful lot more to this than meets the eye. Just to sort of go back to their first proposition, which is that uh, the law is out of date. Yes, the Broadcasting Act was passed in 1989. Yes, the Films, Videos, Publication, Classification Act was passed in 1993. The uh, press media, if you want to put it that way, newspapers and and so on and so forth, uh, are not subject to any legislative uh, control but they are subject to a voluntary organisation which used to be the Press Council going since 1970 and which is now the the, um, uh, uh, New Zealand uh, Media Online, the Online New New Zealand Media Council. Sorry, got that one wrong. But um, that's a voluntary organisation and it is done, uh, it is uh, controlled, if you like, or its control comes in as a result of complaints that are received in the same way that the Broadcasting Act Uh, system comes into play when complaints are received. The um, codes of conduct that have been set up under the Broadcasting Act have been modified over the years, and they're keeping up to date pretty much. Um, The New Zealand Media Council keeps itself up to date as well. They... The, the concept of media has changed so that they can encompass uh, the online space. The Films Videos Act, uh, which is the only piece of censorship legislation that we really have in this country, works on a basis of what's called prior restraint, in that a document uh, is not released out uh, and able to be the subject of a complaint, although I'll mention, deal with that in a moment because uh, material that is referred to the censor uh, is deemed to be objectionable 
And objectionable has uh, a very firm definition, and it's been tested in the courts. And if you are in possession of objectionable material, you've committed an offence. And if you deal in objectionable material, you've committed an offence, and so it should be. But the threshold for objectionable material, which is illegal, is very, very high. Now, there can be occasions where somebody reads a book and says, I don't like what I'm reading, and I want, uh, I want the censor to, to cast an eye over it, and that's fine. There's a sort of complaint system there, but mainly it works on the basis of prior restraint. Now, these, these provisions, the Films, Videos Act and so on, has been amended on a number of occasions. It extends into the online space, it extends to streaming video, it extends to uh, all sorts of other video as well. And the issue that I have is, is this necessary? And what is proposed, in fact, goes a long, long way beyond the Broadcasting Act, goes beyond the Films Videos Act, and it actually ignores some legislation that is already in place as far as harmful communications are concerned. Uh, that piece of legislation, the Harmful Digital Communications Act, which was passed in 2015, uh, actually deals with uh, uh, harmful communications in the online space. It deals with electronic communications, which is pretty much anything that goes over the internet. Now, you said that um, reality radio uh, is self-regulated. Yes, it is to a certain degree. But if somebody broadcasts something on reality radio and a listener suffered serious emotional distress and was able to bring that particular broadcast within the ambit of the Harmful Digital Communications Act, it could well be that that particular broadcast might be taken down, as depending upon it fulfilling certain legal tests. So the Harmful Digital Communications Act is there, but it barely rates a mention in the um, in this uh, discussion document, which I think is is a matter of concern because it deals with a lot of the issues um, that have been raised. But what the proposal is is to fold aspects of the Broadcasting Act uh, and the Films Videos Act into one uh, overarching umbrella-like piece of legislation, which will cover everything and it'll deal with platforms. And these platforms may be Google, they may be Facebook, uh, as long as a platform falls within the ambit of um, the proposed legislation, which uh, may be 25,000 uh, uh, subscribers or 100,000 people who are members or something of that nature, uh, it isn't many in terms of internet context, um, then they are required to uh, formulate codes of conduct. Now, the content of the codes of conduct is a little bit vague at the moment, but there might be a code of conduct, say, for gaming platforms, a code of conduct for broadcasting platforms, a code of conduct for social media platforms. Now, these codes of conduct will regulate the type of activity that goes on in these communication spaces. And if the regulator, and there will be a regulator who will replace the chief censor, if the regulator doesn't like the code of conduct that has been devised by the industry, that person may impose the code of conduct upon that branch of the industry with which they will have to comply. If there is non-compliance with the code of conduct, 
then there can be some penalties uh, that will come into play, including the ability on the part of the regulator to take material down, that is, to act as a censor. Now, this goes beyond objectionable material, which is illegal, as we understand it, and it extends out to other material which may or may not be objectionable. But if somebody doesn't like it, uh, or they feel, quote, unsafe, close quote, whatever that is, um, then uh, there is this, this takedown power, and if the material isn't taken down, there can be consequences. And furthermore, if people start really uh, operating quite outside the envelope, um, then there could be individual consequences for them as well. Now, the Department of Internal Affairs naively suggests that we're not interested in regulating content, we're interested in regulating platforms. No, that's not correct. The ultimate objective is the regulation of content. And that is a matter of concern because we are dealing here, as far as the internet is concerned, with a communication system, something that facilitates the ability of people to express a point of view. And what this involves is a gross interference with the freedom of expression. So the codes of practice, as they say in this discussion document, will set out more detailed minimum expectations for harm minimization, user protection and transparency. Now, I know this is just a discussion document, but gee, those are very wide ranging and very subjective phrases, aren't they? And I suppose from yep. the feedback, they want to be able to get more details. But really, when it comes to legislation, uh, the way that many pieces of legislation have been written in the past, David, and you'll know this as a judge, uh, quite often there are wide ranging and very, shall we say, ill defined phrases go into legislation, particularly in areas such as this. Absolutely. Um, the, the, problem, <clears throat> the problem is that um, in many respects, when you talk about safety, which is one of the big um, things that they're, they're advocating, you're talking about risk management. And what you are trying to do is to anticipate where there may be an unsafe area, for example. Now, when we talk about um, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of, of, of carpentry equipment or a household appliance or something like that, there are very objective standards that are available to work out whether or not it's safe or it's unsafe. You know, does the electrical wiring comply with standards and so on and so forth. When you're talking about speech, that's an entirely different ballgame because what I say to a particular audience may be quite harmless but may be quite controversial as far as another audience is concerned. And, and, and yet another audience might find what I'm saying to be quite objectionable and awful. Um, it may be very measured or whatever, and I try to keep as measured as I possibly can, uh, but not everybody is going to agree. And this is the area where people say, oh, um, I don't like that. Um, that makes me feel unsafe. And that is very, very subjective. And in fact, what they're trying to do is introduce what I call a prospective test. Is the particular communication or is a range of communications likely to raise the level of risk to an unacceptable level? And that involves that concept of what I discussed a, a moment ago called prior restraint. 
That is to stop something getting out before it gets out, to restrain it before prior restraint, restrain before it gets out. My approach is more based on the Harmful Digital Communications Act approach, which is a more retroactive approach. Let the publication go out there. Does it actually cause harm? And under the Harmful Digital Communications Act, that's serious emotional distress. Does it actually cause harm? If it actually causes harm, then we have a measure for that particular communication. We're not trying to anticipate. We're not engaging in a subjective examination. We have objective evidential proof that the material is causing harm, and then we can do something about it. And and this is the, the issue. Uh, when you talk about safety, you, you're getting into a very, very subjective issue. And, and the word safety is bandied about these days very, very casually without really thinking about what it, what it means and what the implications are, because prior restraint is censorship. It's, it's the type of thing, you're not allowed to say that because somebody might feel unsafe as a result of it. Well, really? Um, that's, you know, speech is, is, it can be chaotic and it can be challenging and it can be controversial uh, and it can be confronting. But you've got to have that within a liberal democracy because if you don't, then you can't even reach a consensus on any particular point of view. And that's where the problem lies. David, it says, though, in this discussion document, and I quote from it, the regulator would not have any powers over editorial decision-making or individual users who share legal content. Now, is Correct. the fly in the ointment there the word legal? Is, is there a yep. possibility that content which, say, criticises the government or criticises a particular action of uh, government policy uh, could be deemed yep. illegal by a regulator. Is that where the, the issue really lies? Well, it, it comes down to um, the codes of conduct. Um, you see, under the Films Videos Act, they've got the, the, the test word is objectionable. Is the content objectionable? Uh, and and that's been that particular concept has been examined by the legislature. It's been through the select committee process. It's been tested in the courts and it's been ruled upon. When you have codes of conduct, what in fact you have is what, what I call secondary legislation or in fact soft legislation. This, these are rules that are set up to modify the behaviour of an individual which has not been through Parliament, which has not been through the select committee process, which has not been legislatively examined and which ultimately could be determined upon by the courts, but by then it might be too late. And there, there, there are no sort of um, safety valves uh, in this process. And soft legislation can, can be, well, it can be badly drafted. Uh, it can be badly uh, um, uh, implemented. And it can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people. Uh, we have a parliamentary council's office who are responsible for legislative drafting for a purpose. It's a very complex process. And to leave that up to industries or into, in the hands of a regulator, in my view, is very, very dangerous indeed. Um, I don't like anything about this particular proposal because I think it's unnecessary. 
And I think that with some modifications to the Harmful Digital Communications Act, they could achieve at least some of the objectives that they want to achieve. But if, if this particular proposal, even if it's modified to a slight degree, comes into force, there are going to be all sorts of problems for the free, wide-ranging, robust discussions that we are used to in our liberal democracy. But you have written that regulation of media is a very, very old concept going back to the invention of the printing press in the Middle Ages. And in this country, I, I of course... PA, I did my PhD thesis on that. Yeah. Yes. So in, in, in this country, we've had government intervention in the media, famously in the 1930s with uh, the Friendly Road, the radio station in Auckland being closed down, Uncle Scrim and all that. Yeah, uh, so, right. so it it's not without precedent in this country that government wants to interfere in media content, is it? Oh, they certainly do. Um, they have for a long time. Uh, I mean, histor historically, they've, they've, always, they've always had difficulties with the media. Um, I mean, in, in New Zealand, for example... Um, at one stage, you weren't allowed to have private radio stations. Look at us now. Um, and you and I both remember the Radio Hauraki um, pirate radio station in 1966. Um, the Broadcasting Act prohibited that because the state realised the power of broadcasting. Television licensing. The state controls the licensing of television stations. Uh, it is very, very important to to control the media. They don't have a go at the uh, at the sort of mainstream press because traditionally that's been a hands-off approach. But of course, with the um, uh, with that public interest journalism fund, uh, there have been, shall we say, incentives for the mainstream media to come into line. Yes. <laughs> but can a government can a government ever expect to to regulate uh, the internet in the way that they can regulate broadcasting frequencies? I mean, at the moment, you've got to buy the frequencies on the spectrum. You've got to yep. pay the Department of Internal Affairs a lease fee each year. Uh, a yep. government, particularly a sovereign individual government, can never expect to be able to do that with the internet, can they? Because the internet is nope. truly an international network. Well, they don't understand really what it is. Um, the first thing that's, that's important is that, and this is going way back into the early 1990s, there was an adage which said, the internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it. Uh, that's why, I mean, the internet was designed initially as a defence communication system that could sustain a nuclear attack and would keep on running. It is a distributed network, and when you try to regulate a distributed network, there is no central body. I mean, look, with Television New Zealand, they've got their offices in, in Auckland. They're centralised. The New Zealand Herald is centralised. Uh, but anything that is out on the internet is not centralised. It is decentralised. And you can't, people have tried. I mean... It, it, it goes back, I mean, in, in the uh, 2012s, I remember Sarkozy of France uh, wanted to regulate the internet in the same way that Jacinda Ardern uh, wants to regulate the internet with the Christchurch call. Um, you know, what, the, what in fact they are trying to regulate is not the internet itself. They are trying to regulate content. 
and content. Um, as Marshall McLuhan, who was a commentator on on um, communication, said, content is the is the lazy dog of the mind. Um, that's an easy target to go after. Try to regulate the internet itself. Forget it. It's not. It is designed to withstand that type of interference. But some countries can. You go to China and try and operate oh. your iPhone when you get off the plane. And it doesn't yep. work. You can't. You can't That's call right. home. You can't look at NZ Herald, or you can't look at stuff on your on no. your phone. No, a highly totalitarian society like um, communist China. Um, yeah, sure. And and during the Arab Spring, Mubarak actually shut the internet down and shut down uh, mobile phone networks and so on and so forth because that was the way that protesters were communicating. And I can recall that I had a friend who was travelling in Egypt at the time. And his communication system went completely dead. He was off the grid uh, as a result of what Mubarak did. But that is extreme stuff, Peter. You know, that is really extreme. That's, uh, <clears throat> that's totalitarianism with a vengeance. And to think that, that it, it could be done uh, in, in New Zealand, a liberal democracy, is just outrageous. But we've had examples of it. I know that uh, I knew, I knew my, my colleague on this on this station, Cameron Slater, when he ran his uh, uh, much uh, lamented and infamous website, uh, Whale Oil Be Fucked. Uh, it uh, it was subject to what do they call um, attacks of service. Uh, so that sort of thing does happen on a regular basis, yeah. doesn't it, from political but opponents? Yeah, denial of service attack can yeah. can can shut down, and you and the Department of Internal Affairs, in fact, has uh, ways and means of uh, shutting down content even now. Um, but they exercise that power with a certain amount of restraint. But isn't it interesting, Peter, that this is the Department of Internal Affairs that collects that that broadcasting fee that you spoke about, um, that is responsible for the Films, Videos, Publications uh, Act. Um, that is putting forward this particular uh, promotion of the safer online services. Um, gosh, you know they are—they really want to involve themselves uh, in this particular area, don't they? And there's Control also what we want. Yeah, there are also Control these yeah, these these two words which have really become part of the vernacular in in recent times, especially since the COVID era began. Misinformation and disinformation. I'm I'm certain that a lot of people actually don't know the difference between the two, even though there are specific definitions of of the two phrases, and they're not the same. But these are two. Two words which are very much part and parcel of life today, and you suspect that the DIA, Department of Internal Affairs, is very much involved in misinformation and disinformation suppression and wants to uh, to go even further. Well, in fact, the, the, the particular government agency that's really got its interest uh, focused on misinformation and disinformation is, in fact, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And um, they've been doing quite a considerable amount of work in trying to build up what they call resilience against misinformation and disinformation. I've, I've written on that particular aspect uh, quite a bit, Peter, um, and my concern is that although people sort of say, oh, that's misinformation or misinformation is being put out by X, Y, Z, unfortunately, nobody seems to give any examples of it. 
Nobody actually tells us what the misinformation is. And my view about it, when I sort of scrolled through uh, yards and yards and yards of this stuff, is in fact what people describe as misinformation is in fact an opinion. And people are entitled to hold an opinion. They're entitled to hold an opinion that I agree with. They're entitled to hold an opinion that I violently disagree with. But they're still entitled to hold it. And I might think that it's misinformed, but they've still got an, an entitlement to say it. Disinformation is a little bit different. And that's sort of bandied about by the very suspect uh, disinformation project um, who have put out a number of papers which, in my view, uh, lack uh, intellectual rigour, uh, don't provide any evidence, and are full of subjective uh, discussion uh, rather than objective analysis. So um, it's, those are two words that I have a considerable amount of difficulty with because nobody is actually prepared to give people examples of what is misinformation and what is disinformation. It's, they're just um, what I call veto words which shut down discussion. And the other one that comes into that category is racism and racist, particularly as it applies to this man Julian Bachelor's tour around New Zealand yes. at the moment. Yes. Uh, everybody says, yes. oh, it's a racist uh, proposition he's putting forward. Well, I've yet to see yep. any comment, any specifics of what Julian Bachelor is actually saying. It's just the, the reportage of his tour is all about just the protest, nothing so much about his content. Yep. And that's a bother, that's isn't right. it? Yes. Well, it's the, really the reportage, and there was uh, there was a piece I was reading just a little earlier this morning about an experience that they had in Hawke's Bay, is that you're here, what you're seeing is an example of the heckler's veto. Um, Mr. Bachelor has been uh, the victim, uh, shall we say, of the heckler's veto, where people try to shut him down so that he can't say what he wants to say, in the same way that... Um, uh, uh, Posey Parker, um, so-called, uh, was shut down by uh, the heckler's veto in um, uh, Albert Park and how um, Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux uh, were subject of the heckler's veto and being denied a venue in Auckland some time ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a matter of concern that these type of uh, interferences with the ability to communicate uh, are taking place. And the thing about it, Peter, is that under Section 14 of the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, when you look at the freedom of expression, there is the freedom to, an, to express an opinion, which is the outward flow of information. But there's also a right under Section 14 to receive information, that is to hear the information that's coming in. So what is happening is that although Julian Batchelor may be silenced and his freedom of expression may be interfered with by the heckler's veto. What is happening is that the people who've gone along there who want to be informed and hear what he has to say are having their rights interfered with as well, and that's a matter of concern. Well, I don't know whether or not you can comment on this as a retired <laughs> judge, but what did you think then of the court rulings regarding the, the Lauren Southern Stephen Molyneux case uh, whenever they were in 2019, 2020, those court cases that uh, were brought by what was then the Free Speech Coalition, now the Free Speech Union, about yeah. the ability um, for those people to hold public meetings and for other organisations to basically use the heckler's veto to have them shut down? 
Yeah, the Moncrief Spittle case. Indeed. Um, yeah, I've... Yeah, let's just say, Peter... It's, it's difficult for you, isn't it? No, 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 it's not, it's not difficult. It, um, it's just that I could probably go on for some hours about that, but I won't. Uh, let's just say that I think that there are other arguments that have as yet been untested as far as the heckler's veto are concerned. Uh, and and I, let's just leave it at that. There, there, are, there, are other, there are other things that can be done in that particular space. But do you believe that the right to free speech is, with the justifiable limitations, is it, is it absolute? <laughs> I've been called a free speech absolutist and I'm not um, because I uh, recognise the necessity for, show, for example, um, the ability to censor really objectionable content. So I'm not a, I'm not a free speech absolutist. But I think that we are becoming very um, we're becoming very relativistic uh, in our society about free speech, and the general attitude is, oh yeah, free speech is great as long as I agree with it. Well, that isn't that isn't the the thing at all. Um, a guy called Anthony Lewis in the United States wrote a book called Freedom for the Thought We Hate which was based upon a statement by Oliver Wendell Holmes, which goes back to the 1930s. Um, you know, if, freedom of speech is nothing if you agree with it. Freedom of speech is everything if you disagree with it, um, because that at least gives you the opportunity to answer back as well. So, no, I'm not a, I'm not a free speech absolutist. But one of the things that did occur to me was that back in 2018, I was teaching a course with a colleague on media law to some LLM students. And uh, we were talking about freedom of expression and freedom of speech and so on, as you do when you talk about media law. And we were absolutely astonished at the uh, response that some of the students came out with, which said, well, you know, is freedom of speech that important? And my colleague and I sort of <laughs> looked at one another and thought, these are law students. How old are these, these people? David? These are masters. These were people who were in their uh, mid twenties, um, and, and these were masters students. And we thought, well, uh, surely you've done the course on the Bill of Rights Act and so on and so forth. You understand why this is important. But this relativistic approach to freedom of expression is a real worry. Um, and yeah, I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, yes, um, we have freedom of expression under Section 14. Yes, that's subject to the Justified Limitations Clause in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, but the important thing is the limitation has got to be necessary, and that is the real, real crunch point. Well, Voltaire was supposed to have said, and I don't think it was him, I think it was his biographer who said, I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your, your, your right to say it. Uh, yep. And unfortunately, that concept seems to have gone missing from our tertiary education sector. You know, is that in itself a worry? Are the people teaching at undergraduate level not pushing the case hard enough for the Bill of Rights Act, the Human Rights Act? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's a relativistic uh, approach to things. I think that um, there are problems with resilience, that people aren't, you know, they, they consider 
um, feelings of discomfort or feelings of disagreement uh, with feelings of, of, of unsafeness or lack of safety. And that's, where the, that's part of where the problem comes in. Um, there's this unwillingness to uh, say, well, yeah, sure, I, I'm, I'm hearing what you say, uh, and I disagree with it. So let's have a talk about that. Let's have a discussion about that. But nobody wants to engage. And, of course, the problem these days is that the minute you start to confront, confront other people with an opposing point of view, uh, the voices get raised and the fists start to get clenched and <laughs> it, all goes, it all goes downhill. But I was having a discussion with a person uh, over dinner on, on Friday night uh, last and um, this person was coming out with some weird and wonderful ideas. And he said, what do you think of that? And I said, I think it's great that you're able to express those particular points of view. And I'm very, very grateful that you have because I'm better informed about your position. Ah, he said, do you agree with them? I said, that's not the issue, whether or not I agree with them. The issue is that you've got the opportunity to say them. I've got the opportunity to listen to them. Uh, I can assess them. And then I can engage with you and answer the particular arguments if I feel so inclined. And he said, do you feel so inclined? And I said, no. I said, I'm in the middle of my dinner and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Very good. You were at university in the 1960s as a student. You've taught for yep. a good part of this century uh, on a part-time yep. basis while you were on the bench. Do you notice yep. or have you noticed a significant change in attitudes towards free speech and open debate uh, in those two eras? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I certainly have. Um, I remember when I first started teaching um, uh, internet law at Auckland back in 2000, um, you know, the, the, the class, was, it, was, it was real fun. I mean, for about five years, it was, it was great. We had some, some extraordinary discussions um, about all sorts of things, about freedom of expression and copyright and piracy and all that sort of thing. And then it sort of began to, to calm down a little bit. And um, the, the, the lectures sort of stopped being discussions and started becoming lectures um, where I would get up and spout on for 50 minutes and then take a 10-minute break and then go on for another 50 minutes and there might be one or two. It was all very sort of anodyne and, and yeah, it, it, was it was different, let's put it that way. And do you know what caused I, I that know. difference? I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I always said, you know, I left, I left my gown at the door. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a lecturer. I'm not a judge. You know, let, let's, let's forget about that aspect of the hierarchy as far as the law is concerned, because believe me, it's a very hierarchical profession. But, um, you know, I try my, my level best to um, uh, get rid of the hierarchy and, you know, I'm just a, a mind here that's maybe just a little bit further down the track that you are, and I'm sharing the information that I've got, and we can talk about it. Um, and that was the way that I wanted to approach it, and that's the way that I like to approach teaching anyway. So where do you think we're going to go with this discussion document? Is a change of government on the 14th of October going to mean that this will just be quietly put into the corner and forgotten about, or do you think there is... Uh, a need, um, a desire on the part of the bureaucrats to keep the momentum going? Um, somehow I don't think this will pass muster with David Seymour. <coughs> uh, 
um, if if he has anything to do with it. Um, I, I, I honestly, I honestly don't know, Peter. I don't know how much of this is being driven by the bureaucrats because I know that um, the whole sort of content regulation uh, review um, was started in about 2020 following upon the Christchurch uh, massacre. And it was part of um, an overall look at what was going on on the internet um, following that particular incident. And um, it seemed to stall at one stage. And I thought that um, we'd, we'd seen an end to it, that, this, that it was just going to die the death. But all of a sudden, the discussion document has come back. <coughs> the, um, the due date for submissions, in fact, is the um, 31st of this month, which is next Monday. Um, and I note that Internet NZ, whose point of view I strongly disagree with, um, has uh, said, well, perhaps we should extend the date for submissions out. Um, and, and I don't have any problem with that because I think that everybody should have an opportunity uh, to put forward their particular point of view on this, even although you know I might disagree with it or they might disagree with me. But I think it's important, as far as the process is concerned, um, to express a point of view. I think that um, trying to put a, what they propose into a legislative envelope will be extremely difficult uh, and will be very, very fraught indeed. Uh, and um, I think that if, uh, if, if what is proposed is the broad brush outline of what the Department of Internal Affairs would like to see, um, it's, it's going to take an awful lot of work to put it into any comprehensible uh, format uh, that is going to work. And of course, the thing is that they're going to require the cooperation of the players, like the Googles and the Facebooks and all the rest of them. And more importantly, they're going to require the cooperation of the news media. And as far as I understand, there are elements of the news media that do not like this at all. So it could well be that there'll be quite a bit of pushback on um, getting this proposal past the line. Well, I think that even hard old lefties like Martin Bomber Bradbury are vehemently opposed to it. In fact, he's featured, of all things, in the free speech uh, union advertising on it, uh, basically along the lines of whose dumb idea was it five months before an election to come up with a discussion document on free speech. So th right oh. across the political spectrum, there is opposition to this, isn't there? Not, not, not only Bradley, Chris Trotter. I never thought that I'd find myself agreeing with Bomber Bradley or Chris Trotter, but on this particular point, I do uh, very much so. Um, yeah, they, they are expressing a considerable degree of concern because, you see, Bradley, for example, could qualify as a platform under the legislation. Well, he has that, his own yeah. blog. He has his own podcast, rather, so so he's yep. there. Yeah. Yep. yep, I know. And, uh, and and so does so does Trotter and um, and a lot of other people. I do as well, but I don't have anything like the um, the, the following. Um, uh, my following is in the hundreds rather than in the thousands. So uh, uh, I, I think I'd probably be able to fly under the radar. But um, uh, no, they they are they are well and truly in the frame. Mm. 
I mean, the real issue comes back to that infamous line of Jacinda Ardern's when she was asked, what is hate speech? And she said, you know it when you see it. Uh, basically, nobody knows what it is. It's completely and utterly ill-defined. If you put it into legislation, it would be as woolly, surely, as that line about the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. We don't really know what they are either. No. Well... Um, I remember going along to a conference where I heard a leading New Zealand academic who should know better uh, say, hate speech is speech I hate to hear. (laughs) And I I thought, oh boy, you know, we are in trouble here. Hate speech is, uh, I hate hate the term hate speech. I, I, I loathe it because it's very, very imprecise and it's extremely subjective and emotive. Uh, I've written a paper where I have suggested, in fact, that it should be termed dangerous speech, and it should be and and uh, what 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 I view as dangerous speech is speech where people advocate physical harm against other people or against groups of other people, and where there's a, a, an incitement of physical harm, uh, sort of go out and shoot these people or something like that. You know, that's that's hate speech, but you know. I don't like to hear what you're saying or something like that. That ain't hate speech. Come on, you know, I mean, really, get a grip. Yeah, and somehow somehow the concept of uh, I don't like what you have to say and I feel unsafe and offended because of what you say uh, apparently now holds some credence in modern-day society, and I just think that oh, is Salman, so wrong. Salman Rushdie said the freedom of expression without the right to offend is nothing. Yep. And what's that old quote that uh, George Orwell says, which you hear Ronnie Reagan say in various recorded promos, uh, the the greatest thing about freedom is the right to say no. That's right. And I think that's where we we should be at. That should be our starting point. But unfortunately, it would seem that some bureaucrats and some politicians don't want to know about those concepts. Uh, David, thank you so much. Uh, You've got some other other thoughts to have? Yeah, the only other thing that Reagan said that I like is that the government is the problem. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, that has been a well-known fact for some years, some centuries. Hey, uh, David, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for your uh, your comments on this matter. It would be good to think that this will never see the light of day, uh, but I think we've got to be very vigilant, and those that wish to submit should submit and uh, get uh, their thoughts in as quickly as possible uh, in case that deadline for submissions is not extended. For sure. No, that's great. Thank you, Peter. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And uh, as I say, I think it's important that we have this discussion. Uh, but as you say, I hope it doesn't go any further than that. Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio.